Guys, welcome. Welcome. We are really, really excited that y'all are here. Uh, this is Counseling from the Scripture. My name is Jack Thurman. I and this gentleman next to me, we are your hosts for today, here to help and answer any questions that y'all have uh, now, later, afterwards. Come find us. Uh, we would love to help out. So, uh, like I said, my name is Jack Thurman. I've been here at Watermark probably three and a half years. Um, I'm in community with this guy here, and so huge advocate of that, so much so that it's one of the areas that I serve is base camp and helping lead um, and, and just instruct, guide, assist some of the other community group leaders here. And so um, and a- another interesting fact about me is I was one of the uh, first people being baptized in the pond outside in the inaugural baptism service. So very exciting, and uh, like I said, if you need anything at all, I have gum. Some of us forgot to brush our teeth this morning. I've got that. This is Jared. Welcome, everyone. I'm Jared, and um, just excited to be here alongside of you today. Um, a little bit about me. I came here from California about a year ago. So if anyone wants to talk 49ers or Angels baseball, um, come find me at the break. <laughs> um, but uh, anyways, I've been at Watermark for about a year, um, and I'm in community group with, with Jack and have been getting discipled with Todd. Uh, so just very excited to be here. I brought mints. So for those of you that did brush your teeth and just want a little refresher, uh, come see me at the break. And here's uh, Todd Sinelli. Good, good, good. Hey, welcome, everybody. If you need gum or mints, they're the guys to talk to. I think they have tissues or even they'll refresh your beverages while you're here. So take advantage of them today. Real quick, I just want to introduce myself. You might be thinking, who is this guy and what's he doing here today? My name is Todd Sinelli, and I'm a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. Um, professionally, I've worked a lot of different things from a trader in the financial markets to used to be a director for an international franchise for a brand to a professional magician to a missionary. So a whole different gamut of different things that I've done. Uh, education, did some graduate work here in Texas. I did some postgraduate work as well, but I've been a member of Watermark for a few years, so I actually enjoy being here, and probably some of you have taken a different class, or maybe the one simple word, I know a few of you have done that. Um, Been counseling for over 10 years, have a certification in euthetic counseling, for those that know what it is, but it's a, a, a counseling certification, but that's not the important thing. When you look through the scriptures in Acts 4.13, it talks about the confidence of Peter and John. That the Sanhedrin, the members of the Sanhedrin, took note of these guys because they were untrained, uneducated. But they took note of them because they had been with Jesus, not based on their pedigree or anything else. So just encourage you. Some of you are coming to curious about how to counsel, and we'll get through that. I'm also an ambassador. I'm an ambassador for the word compassion, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but also for the organization Compassion International, which looks to stop poverty in the name of Jesus for a lot of orphans across the, the nation. Um, discipling, there's some people here actually from Chicago. Where are James and Amanda? Yeah, these, these guys have been in Bible studies with me back in Chicago when I used to live out there. So the next round is Jack and Jared and some other people. So really believe that we're to teach what we've learned to others so that they can grow in the grace and knowledge of the truth of our Lord. Today I'm going to focus on how to counsel from the scriptures. We're going to go through what to do and what not to do in a counseling situation. 
And I have uh, Scott O'Malley here. Scott has been a friend. We've counseled in Chicago. We've counseled in Dallas. We have done presentations for church pastors as well as for just church lay people in Chicago as well as at different places. And uh, it's just a privilege and opportunity to have Scott here to weave into the presentation as well. So give a round for Scott O'Malley. Not sure if my, can you hear me? My mic on at all? Okay, just checking there. All right, great. I brought this up just in case. Hi, I'm Scott O'Malley. I uh, work for 12 Stones Ministries. Uh, I have the privilege of raising eight wonderful children, uh, seven birth children, one adopted, and uh, just a great privilege to be here. And uh, 12 Stones Ministries is in central Indiana, and we provide intensive biblical counseling for people in crisis from all over the world. Over 30 states have come to us. We've even had a few people from foreign countries uh, fly all the way to Indiana to get some counseling help because of just the acute nature of their struggles, and it's just a great privilege to be here. My passion not only is to counsel and help people, but I love to help people who are excited about counseling and helping people, discipling people. I want to help them be more and more equipped to do that, so I'm thrilled that all of you are here, and I'm just excited to have the opportunity uh, to share what God has been teaching me through the years and to be a blessing to you today. Um, I'm also an elder at my church, uh, discipling a young man at my church, uh, him and his wife, and just a great privilege to do that as well. been counseling for almost 15 years, and uh, today just to share some things uh, with you, um, this uh, uh, Q&A time we'll have at the end, we're going to be talking about some progressive uh, changing from, pract- from theology to the practical nature of things, and just talking through that as well, and uh, what makes counseling biblical. So excited to be here, and thank you for coming, and may the Lord bless our day today. So real quick, thank you, Scott. Um, just expectations. Glad you're here. You might have come with expecting bubble gum, and you got regular gum, so you're already disappointed. You might have wanted your favorite mint, and you didn't get that. We come with expectations. A lot of times we come with an expectation that you're going to leave here and be ready to counsel from the Scriptures just based on a presentation. Perhaps that's true. Some of you might have been thinking that, oh, I thought you guys were going to give counsel for us. And that's okay, too. But as far as expectations, you're going to learn some different things about counseling, what it is, what it is not. There's, when, when we talk about counseling, two, two simple words for today's presentation. When I was in Boy Scout, anyone in Boy Scouts? A couple? They, they had two words. What were the two words that the Boy Scouts used to always teach? Be prepared. Be prepared. And it's important to be prepared with counseling in different ways. But today I want you to pay attention because if you don't pay attention, you're going to miss some really important things here, okay? So we all pay attention to the presentation today. <laughs> Some of them want to hear. If you would put your hands out for a second. Put your hands out like this. Bring them together real quick. Look down. Who here has the right thumb over the left thumb? Raise your hands up like this. You know what that means? You're really intelligent. So here, who here has their left thumb over the right thumb? Raise your hand up like this. You know what that means? You're really good looking. So now that I have nothing but intelligent, good looking people here today, let's just open in a word of prayer, okay? Father God, we thank you. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. May the words of my heart and the words of my lips be gracious. Father, for all that's here, teach us, lead us. May we grow in the knowledge of how to counsel from the scriptures. We ask for your help. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to move through four parts. And even, you know, we have two hours roughly. The first part is what is biblical counseling? Just getting a definition of what it is as well as what it is not. I'm going to talk about counsel, how to counsel, what to do and what not to do when counseling at any level. 
Scott's going to come up and talk about theological to practical, starting with a theological perspective and moving into practical theology. Theology is always expressed in action. And so when you learn words about kindness or faith, there's always an expression of action tied to someone's theology. And then we're going to do a Q&A toward the end. So you might have come with a question that you hope gets answered. Perhaps we'll do our best to get to it, and we hope we will. Scott Faulkner is here. Scott, Scott has index cards. And Scott, if you want to give some to Jack and Jared, too, to help pass out. But write down a question that you'd like answered. And at the first break, give it to Scott. And we'll do our best during the Q&A. And if it doesn't get answered or you want to change your question a little bit later, let us know. So the first part is um, we're just going to talk about biblical counseling, what it is and what, what it isn't. So, Scott, would you gonna take it from here? Thanks. It is a, a great privilege uh, to have the opportunity when we are working with people uh, to... Uh, whether it's in a formal counseling setting like I typically do or more an informal counseling setting or more of a relational way, I want to encourage you to consider how do we, how do we make sure the interactions we have with people uh, are biblical, are founded in, in the Scripture. So let's talk about what is biblical counseling. And uh, the first thing we want to talk about, you got Todd, you with me there? You can scroll for me. We have... What makes biblical counseling biblical, first of all, is that it's Bible-based. It's, it's rooted in the Scriptures. Anytime you're trying to do a work of discipleship or counseling, we want to recognize that the Bible is the, is the source of truth for our help. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Counseling, discipleship, ministering to hurting people is a good work. And the Bible says of itself, we are thoroughly equipped through that avenue, through the truth of Scripture. And, and what we don't want to do then is take the truth of God's Word and blast people with it, hurt them with it, use it to uh, condemn them or shame them in any way. We want to do it with a balance of truth and grace. As we, as we speak about, as John talks about Jesus in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, He is truth and grace. And we want to be personified uh, those, who, those of us who serve one another in love in these ways, we want to be personified by truth and grace. We also want to have a biblical view of man. Man's greatest problem is not that their self-esteem has been injured or, or they think lowly of themselves. We want to help them to recognize their biggest struggle in, in viewing man is Isaiah 59 two. but your sins have separated you from your God so that he does not hear. We want to help be, people to be in right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize that our sin has separated us from God. And, that, and though our sin has separated us from God, God demonstrated His own love toward us that while we were still in sin, He died for us. And we want to help people to put their faith and trust in, in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and that He is their Lord and their Savior and their King and their friend. And so we want to help people to recognize that their biggest struggle is how they've been separated from God and, and help them to see that in this next point, Christ-centered counsel, Christ-centered encouragement, Christ-centered wisdom is their hope. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that transforms people. It's the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel. It's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. We want to help people to be new creatures in Christ. We want to give them what God has to say from the scriptures, balanced with truth and grace. Christ is the answer. Christ is their ultimate answer to life struggles. We want to help people to see that. And then lastly, Uh, also Holy Spirit directed. It's the Holy Spirit's job and the power to change people 
Acts 1.8 reminds us, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you'll have power. It's the Holy Spirit power that empowers us to grow and change. It's not my sharpness. It's not my wisdom. It's not my craftiness and my skill. But it's the Holy Spirit. And I want to depend upon the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that I can find is, if I start to trust in myself, Proverbs 28.26, He who trusts in himself is a fool. I am not the answer to people's struggles. I am not the one who has the power to change anybody. It's the Spirit of God that lives inside of me and in those who believe that they have the power to change. And then lastly, this is a really important one for all of us here, and that is growth takes place in community. Growth takes place in community. There's reasons why it says we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves in Hebrews 10.25. And God would call us to live in community. It's not the job of just professionals. It's not the job of the elders or the pastors to do all of the work, right? It's the job of the elders and the pastors to equip the people to do the work of the ministry. And discipling and caring for people is the work of the ministry. And so I, I urge you to be encouraged to walk down this path of what does it mean to be discipled? What does it mean to disciple others? What does it mean to be involved in intentionally intrusive, grace-driven, redemptive community? What does it look like to be involved in each other's lives in such a way that you are sharpened by one another, you encourage one another through the Word of God, and they encourage you? Now, what biblical counseling is not, it's not an opinion. It's not man's opinion. Biblical counseling is not a way in which I get to tell you how wonderful I am or my new theories or my new ideas. I constantly am telling people when I'm working with them or spending time with them, I've got nothing new for you. I have nothing brand new. I've got nothing new under the sun. It's not my opinion. And honestly, if I can be real gentle, I'm not really that concerned about your opinion either. And I hope you're not concerned about mine. What does God say? That's what we want to talk about. It's not psychology. It's not, I'm not a psychologist who's, if you studied some of these things, that's fine. I'm not here to condemn any of that. I just want to say that God's Word and God's power and God's Spirit is more powerful than any of man's theories. And, and we want to help people who have been exposed to labels in the world like bipolar and schizophrenia, etc. We want to help them to recognize that what the Bible has to say about those things, it, it does have things to say about, about those labels. We just use different language. And we want to help people transition from a, uh, a psychological way of thinking to a biblical way of thinking. 1 Corinthians 2.13 talks about speaking with spiritual truths in spiritual words. So I encourage you to consider that. Don't be intimidated by labels that are out there, but know that God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people together can help us all to grow to be more like Christ. And then lastly, it's again not for professionals. It's not only for professionals. Yes, we do some intensive issues. In, in Indiana, we work with people who've got very serious problems that have been going on for many, many years. But that doesn't mean you can't be involved in walking alongside your friend, having conversations over the kitchen table. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you counsel somebody. Even if you don't use that label, you are giving counsel, you're giving advice, you're giving encouragement, you're giving rebuke. That's counsel understood biblically. And so all of us need to be involved in that process. And God wants all of us to be well-educated in the sense of knowing the Scriptures so we can point people to the living hope that is found in Christ through the power of His Spirit. Excuse me. Thanks, Scott. Uh, a lot. It's really important to understand the definition of what biblical counseling is and what biblical counseling is not. Even when coming into counsel, you just think of the question, where are you? This is the first question that God asks. It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Where are you? And you might be thinking, well, I'm not at the level of Scott or Todd. That's okay. We all start at a certain level, and to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord is a progressive journey. But it starts by recognizing where you are. And when God asks that question, you can answer that question any way you want. 
geographically, physically, intellectually, professionally. When you're in a counseling situation, you want to see, just like you go into a mall, right? There's a big map, and then you're looking around, and there's a dot. And what does the dot say? You're here. This is where you are. Getting an understanding of where the counselee or even where you are is really important. So sometimes people are in a box, and they don't even know how they got there. Or they don't even know what's going on. Or they have some blind spots that they don't see. And that comes through as you have some conversations with them. Everybody has data. You have information. You have things about your life, about your story, about who you've met, about how you've learned your theology, about different events that have happened to you, and even circumstances, as well as emotions that are very common, that are data, and sometimes it's locked in. In Proverbs 20, verse 5, it says, The plans of a man's heart are like deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. And we're going to talk a little bit later how you draw out an understanding or some different data from people at different stages in their life. And even think about that yourself. Where are you? Are you just beginning to learn about counseling? Maybe you've had some classes or you've done it, but you're not really sure how it works. I got into counseling. Actually, I was living in Chicago and uh, I went through some roller coaster stuff financially and I was living upright to the best of my knowledge, and I went into depression. I didn't understand what was going on, and I started going to counselors, and I went through probably three to five different counselors. None of them opened their Bible. None of them um, prayed. None of them did this, and none of them really helped me. And then I went to one guy that had his, he had a couple degrees and was pretty sharp, but the same thing. He didn't even open the scriptures, and I kind of lost it on him. I, I went, like, I want you I want you to tell me why this is happening to me. I was living upright. I was giving. I was doing all the things that I thought I was supposed to do. And you know what? He couldn't. And I went home and I cried a river of tears. I was just like, Lord, what's going on? And then I started reading through the book of Job. And it talks about how Job came naked into this world. Naked he departs. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job 121. And I was like, thank you, Lord, for these trials. Thank you. It was just like a whole different perspective as the scriptures were really giving insight. Number one, when you're thinking about how to counsel from the scriptures, you have to be reading the scriptures. (laughs) That sounds so basic, but I meet so many people, and I don't want to embarrass anyone. If I were to ask people in this room, how many of you had read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation? Read it completely, cover to cover. Asking this question, do you guys want to see, or do you want to No. Yeah? Okay. Some people, how many people have read their Bible? Like cover to cover. Praise God. Wonderful. In counseling, if you're giving counsel and it's a fair question, someone asks, have you read your Bible? Well, yeah. No, no, no. Have you read the whole Bible? No. Couldn't there be some things really important in different sections that you don't even know about that might be helpful? It's a great question. Please read your Bible. <laughs> Take some time to get into a Bible reading plan. Or I know there's some people in this room that we'll talk about a little bit later that can help you with those basic spiritual disciplines. In Romans 15.4, it says, Whatever has been written in the past has been written for our instruction. So through the encouragement and perseverance of the Scriptures, you actually have hope. We get hope from the Scriptures, and the hope is replete in there. And when Peter's writing in 2 Peter 1.3, it says his divine power has given us everything we need for life and for godliness through a true knowledge of him. If we believe that's true, then the God of the Bible and the God that's used many men to author different books has given us everything we need. 
And to have the belief, as he'll build on, and when you look in Romans 15, 13, it says, May the God of all hope fill you with joy in believing. So you can even believe in these different promises. When you start even counseling, read people. And what I mean by that is you can read countenances pretty quick. If someone comes in and they're really heavy or their eyes are bloodshot or their hair is scrambled, you know they probably just woke up and scrambled to come in. In Proverbs 27, 19, it says, As water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects a man. When you really start paying attention to the scriptures, your face becomes an autobiography of so many different things. And to pay attention of a person's countenance, even as you're counseling, as you're saying something, and they're getting that scowl, you know you probably touched on something that's pretty important. How, how to counsel, learning how to read, read your Bible, and learning also listening. Listening is imperative. In Proverbs 19.27, it talks about cease listening to instruction and you'll stray. A friend of mine, Colton Birch. Colton, would you come up here? Jack or Jared, do you have a mic? Is the mic passing around? I can talk real loud. Can you, Colton? Yeah, I believe that. This is Colton. Colton, this is a friend of mine, and I just asked him to speak. Colton is one of the best auditory learners, listeners that I know. And I asked Colton, like, how did you develop such a skill in listening? Well, Todd asked me to come speak and, and ask how I developed the skill in listening. And uh, the reason I think he asked me, the reason I, I have developed the skill of listening, I think, is uh, I'm actually legally blind. Uh, and what I mean by that is I have about 30% vision in one eye and about 70% vision in the other eye. Can you do this? This is better? Can y'all hear me better now? Uh, and so be- because of my uh, lack of vision, uh, I-, I do not rely on my vision, even though I can see some, to uh, paint a picture in my mind or to, to see things, but I rely on my auditory skills. Um, so, for example, what I'll do is I listen to people. I listen to their words, their tones, and their accusations um, to really paint a picture in my mind of the scenario or situation or story that is happening around me. And, and, and Todd has a great example of this. Is uh, Me and Todd actually ran a uh, race together. We ran an uh, obstacle race together, one of these mud runs. And uh, I'd be running out in front of Todd, and you could tell by his voice, like, Hey, uh, you better watch out, Colton, by what's in front of you. Uh, or, you know, or hey, take a left or whatever else. And so it worked out really well. But, yeah, just, just getting away from, like, trying to see what I see and really listening to those around me and their words, their accusations, their tones really helps me paint a picture of, in my mind, and rely on that of what is going on. So Perfect. Thank you, Colton. Give a round of applause for Colton. Thanks, Colton. It's a delight learning from people that are really good listeners. And Colton can just hear your voice and recognize who it is. He doesn't even have to see you at different times. It's an amazing gift. And in the essence of his weakness, he's been made strong in different areas. When Paul is writing that in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, power is perfected in weakness. Sometimes the things that make you weak, God will develop different strength in different areas. But if you're going to get into counsel or counsel different people, listening is imperative. In Hebrews 2.1, it says, pay close attention to what you hear so you don't drift away. You stop listening and there's bad news ahead. And Scott, just even a comment on that. How important is listening in the counseling? 
Yeah, I think uh, listening is really critically important uh, in counseling, of course, because you get so much information. But, but even I'd really encourage you to think uh, personally and just when you are spending time with your friends or, or in a Sunday school class or a community group or whatever it is that you have, uh, just are, are you checking in with people? Are you listening to what's going on in their life? And one of the, one of the things that uh, happened a number of years ago is I used to work with a, uh, go to church with a firefighter. And, and if you know much about firefighting, they typically often have uh, inappropriate pictures all over the place in the firehouse. And this is a man of God trying to live life with integrity. And so listening to his struggles and trying to encourage him and, and different things he can be doing. But, and then checking back in with him. And just, just the idea of being interested and in, in showing your listening by following up with questions you talked about a week or two or three ago and just continuing to, to practice the art of listening and paying attention is just so critically important in relationships whether it's in counseling or in just discipleship or, or friendship thank you scott you know you're reading you're reading the bible you're reading people you're listening attentively but you're also continually learning a, a good counselor is a good student always learning in psalm 111 it says great are the works of the lord they are studied by those who delight in him just studying God continually and perpetually, as well as in Psalm 19, it talks about by the commandments of God, you're warned. And in keeping them is great reward. There's warnings in the scripture, do not do that. And sometimes you're going to plead with something. I beg you on behalf of God, do not do that. You don't know what awaits. And there's other times I want to encourage you to be rewarded. Faith without Hebrews eleven six without, how does that go? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And he's a rewarder to those who earnestly seek him. God has promises, but also as you're learning, in Luke 6, 40, it talks about when a student is fully trained, he will become like his teacher. Be discipled. Get into a discipleship relationship. A lot of times in counseling, you'll ask questions in regard to who, is, who are you learning from? Who's influencing your life? In Proverbs 13, 20, it talks about he who walks with wise men becomes wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Parents, I know any parents here, you're still concerned with who your kids are with because you know they're going to learn some things that maybe they don't teach at your house. So who, who is being discipled or who are you being discipled for? Even who are you learning your theology from? Very important in the counseling. So a lot of times too, I want to talk about three doors. You come into a room, there's three doors that a counselor will enter into as you're counseling someone. The first could be condemnation. If, and no one here in this room would do this, but you start condemning the person. Like, I heard what you did, and how could you do that? What's wrong with you? Don't you know? I thought you said you're a Christian. That's bad. That's wrong. This condemnation just comes like a hammer. In Romans 8.1, it says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If the person is feeling condemned in the counseling situation or in the dynamic, a small group, you're talking to the person, it might be that they don't know the Lord. In the Verses are condemning them in some ways. When you look through the scriptures, when Jesus is at the woman with the well, or actually caught in adultery in John chapter 8, all these guys had stones, right? They're ready to condemn her. Jesus starts writing in the sand. And then they start putting down their stones. John 8, I think it's 31, 32, James. There's some good Bereans here that are going to check every passage and verse that go through, which is fantastic. Uh, so looking at the essence of even the story. And then 
everybody puts down their stones and leaves. And he says, woman, where are those who condemn you? And he says, I don't condemn you either. Go. There's no condemnation. If you come in with condemnation, they're going to lock up and you're not going to learn very much or you're not going to be very helpful. Another time is correction. Sometimes people will hear some errant theology and go, you, that's wrong. Ding, 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 and just start blasting. And the person's like corrected and like, ah. A good counselor is going to have different timing. There might be some, some of us, most of us, we have so many errors in our theology and we need help in community for correction, but timing is essential. In Ecclesiastes 3.7, it says there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. And if you lead immediately with correction, blam, 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 the, the person, there's not gonna, you're not going to make much progress. Because no one likes to be told they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong. The best door, and I'd say the only door to enter, is through compassion. A compassionate person, there's power in that. And when Jesus is coming as the God of compassion, and he's with the woman, and he's giving compassion and displaying compassion to the ones that everybody else wanted to condemn. Very important and even essential in regard to understanding this. When Jesus calls Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, in Matthew 9, 9, he says, come, follow me. A tax collector was despised. They'd be the person that would sit across from you and, Kirk, I want a tax for laptop tax. There's a tax for eyeglass tax. There's a phone tax. I mean, they're just making up stuff. So for Jesus to say, come, follow me, like what? And then when you read through the story, you'll see like the scribes and Pharisees are upset. This man welcomes sinners and he's eating with them. And then Jesus kind of turns and goes, you know what? Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion. There's a lot of people that have a high theology, but their theology and application is lacking compassion. And as we grow in this grace and understanding of God, when you study the attributes of God and your theology, when God describes himself in Exodus 34, verse 6, this is actually God describing himself. So if I ask someone to come up here, I said, Tony, come on up here. We want you to describe yourself. And Tony could, or I could. I could say, I'm a writer. I've done this. Uh, I would describe myself. This is God describing himself. And the first thing he says, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate. Scott, do you want to touch on this? How, how important is this for people to understand compassion in regard to counseling? Yeah, just uh, I have the uh, great privilege of uh, meeting lots of folks, as I mentioned. And uh, one of the things that I've learned over time that I did not used to do uh, was to listen long, listen long. I so wanted to help, like he's just talked about, so wanted to correct their theology right away. Oh, that's bad theology. Oh, I better correct that, and I've got a Bible verse for that. And, and of course, one of the reactions you have is people stiff-arm you. They don't want to hear that. That, that Bible truth that was really good is, not, is no longer, uh, the soil of their heart is no longer ready to receive. And when you listen, and I'm talking hours of listening and really letting them tell their story and, and really opening up their hearts, not only does your compassion grow for them, because you hear the hurts, because John sixteen thirty three in this world you will have trouble. Every one of us has a story. Every one of us has been hurt by people. Every one of us has been sinned against. And when we allow the person to tell their story in the right time and, and slowly and carefully without lots of quick correction, 
your heart for them will grow. You will develop a heart of compassion for these people, for your friends, and then they will be ready to receive and to hear because they know you care. Because if all you want to do is correct their theology all the time, I think oftentimes people think, oh, you're just, you just want to tell me what you know. Rather, let's have hearts of compassion that really listen slow, slow, careful, deep. Let them tell you their story without interruption, without correction. And when they're all done, then you can go back and at, at the right time, prayerfully considering what is the right time to share. But compassionate hearts grow by listening. And I plead with you and urge you, don't make them the same mistake I made for years, which was be so quick to correct, but slow and careful and listen and let your heart be filled with compassion for the people you know and love. When you read through even Colossians chapter 3, Scott's going to touch on this a little bit later. Anyone know? I know some people are memorizing some passages. Colossians 3.12. And, oh, I already put it up. <laughs> it's talking about literally, beloved, those who have been chosen of God, clothe yourself with compassion. Almost as you get dressed today, you're clothed with a pure, putting on a pure heart of compassion. Without this, you're going to miss, in essence, the essence of Christ and the essence of counseling in a biblical way. So what to do and what not to do? I want to talk about this. One, do not read minds. In 1 Corinthians 2.11, it says, No one knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit within him. If you're sitting across with someone and go, I know what you're thinking, Camille. Totally know. I got it. Yeah. Like, how can you know what I'm thinking? The Bible says you're not able to do that. More disagreements or disruptions occur when people start reading minds. You might be thinking, like, what's going through your head, Mark? Waving your hands or caressing your hands in back there and go, I don't know what he's thinking. He might be thinking, I'm going to go get a banana split in a little bit. <laughs> I have to ask a question. What, what are you thinking? What's going through? Do not read minds. Do not start hammering people with scripture or with what you know in regard to that in a non-gentle format. When that starts happening, the person's just like, bam, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Romans 8, 28, and it's like a punching bag. And the person's on the other end going, what just happened? Really, we do this, and if you're using words without love, even Paul says, it's a gong. If you've ever had someone, literally, I was in a fraternity in college, and you see this thing called pots and pans, and wake us up with pots and pans in our ears at like 3 in the morning. And it was like a gong in the ears, and you're like, oh, stop. That's what happens if we have not love. Even if you have the wisdom of angels, but you have not love, it profits you nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And the other thing is don't start just smashing down like what's wrong in their life. We can see that. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, it says, There is no righteous man on earth who continues to do good and never sins. So this puts the counselor in check as well. There's no one. People don't be hammered with how bad they are. That's, that's a product of life, really. Help me walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. When you start thinking about where does your heart move to compassion, whether it is to help widows, help orphans, whether it is to disciple other people, whether it is to... Um, deliver meals to elderly people. Think about what it is that really draws your heart with a heart of compassion because what compassion does is it considers another person above their own. It really looks at the person, gets into their world and head and goes, I can help. Here's how. Your heart goes out to them, whether it's someone caught in a sin and you want to help them. 
it's really important to understand how the dimension of compassion works. And even, Scott, quick little illustration for this as well. Yeah, just uh, again, as, you, as, as I hear stories, as I allow uh, people to tell their story, um, just again, my heart of compassion grows for them, and I, and I can feel their pain, and I can see the struggle they're having. And uh, uh, if I could just touch on one other thing I want to go back to a moment ago as well, is this idea of, of timing and, and allowing a heart of compassion not to cause me to harshly correct. One of the things that happened to me when I first uh, came to 12 Stones to interview was I watched a counseling case, and this young lady was struggling, I I believe, with an eating disorder. I can't remember the details, but that's not pertinent. Um, And she's struggling, and and she asks the question, and and one of the the counselors, the counselor there, his name was Rob, uh, he said, you know, I know you want the answer to that question, but I want to encourage you. I don't think you're ready for the answer yet. Can you trust me? that I'll get back to it later when it's time, when you're ready to hear. And, and, and he had a great deal of compassion. He didn't want to give her truth before it was time. Proverbs 25:11, apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in a good time. Okay? And so it was just this compassion for her struggle, not wanting to blast her with biblical truth, helping her to see she's not quite ready yet. I'm going to get there. I'm not avoiding it. It's, there is an answer. God does have something to say. But this heart of compassion for people and thinking about when is the right time, allowing that to, to bear fruit in your own heart and not to be judgmental and harsh and, and remembering what just Todd just said, none of us is righteous, no, not one. And so we can have hearts of compassion for hurting people, allow them uh, to uh, struggle and, and join them with, with Christ's compassion, full of grace and truth, and we will be doing people a great service. What we want to do is uh, we're going to let you work on a little case here. So match up with at least three people at your table. You go to go if you got five, but just at your table. Get into groups. You guys are looking. If you meet, they haven't met each other, just say hi. Jack will give you a piece of gum. Jared will give you a mint if you need it. Jared, this might be your cue, you guys. So raise your hand if you need some gum or mint because you're going to talk to one another for a little bit here. So go ahead and just say hi to one another. At least three people in a group at your table. Okay, here you go. Here's a case. Here's a case we want you to read through. John and Jane have been married for three years. They joined your small group about six weeks ago. Jane went in for a physical exam last week and discovered she has a sexually transmitted disease. They want to discuss this with you tonight. Where would you begin? Discuss. Uh, Five minutes. Just five minutes. Go ahead. How'd you do? I, we're, we're, we're curious. Jack and Jared float around just to find some different, or I, I, I can probably do that. Different questions. What questions? How did you guys choose to begin the discussion on this? Anything come to mind, Tony? What did you guys have? Uh, we didn't want to jump to conclusions. We, we hear this, uh, or we read this up on the screen, and my mind immediately went to the fact that, well, you know, maybe the woman is this, and the guy's, you know, the guy's angry, the woman's ashamed. And our team here goes, well, we're just reading this. How do we know that's really true until we actually have heard the story? Something about don't read. <laughs> How about you guys? Any comments? We had, a, we had a doctor in our group, and he wanted more history. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. How about here? Anyone share some different discussion points that you had? Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. Curious to 
get your feedback. I, I was brought up under the assumption that God won't give you anything that you can't handle. You know, you hear that all the time. And okay. I just learned last week that actually God gives you a lot of stuff you can't handle. I mean, there are people who've committed suicide and done things. Yeah. It's when you're given something you can't handle, where do you turn? Hmm. And and so in this, you know, kind of just coming in with compassion, but saying, hey, look, you can, I would, you know, start that you can, we can handle anything if we turn to the to the right source and just try to start from there. I like it. Good, good, good. We'll, we'll dialogue a little bit more. Any other feedback or comments that you had? This is a lively group back here. Brandon, what were you guys chatting about? We were just chatting about um, how just kind of just listen and just listening and um, uh, asking questions, guiding them, and you build compassion that way, just like you guys are talking about. In, what questions did you want answered? How did that make you feel? How'd that make you feel? Over here. Anything else? What questions did you want answered? What's, what's happening in relationships? How's this affecting your relationship? Okay. How about over here? Big shots. Any comments? <laughs> Whoa. We, we just said, uh, how does it make you feel? How does it make you feel about the other person? Um, and just, just kind of get their feelings and stuff like that. Who so would listen. you ask that to, John or Jane? Uh, both of them. Okay. Any other comments or feedback from that discussion? Pray. Pray. Sure. Condemn them, right? Or. You know, this, this is typical. We get in life situations and things happen. And even some questions, perhaps, Scott, that you'd start the session or even to consider. Yeah, the first thing I would, has, has already been covered very well, is just a lot of listening, trying to understand, uh, just to, uh, allow the story to unfold, hear both sides of the story, uh, and, and certainly asking at some point, uh, I'd want to hear, hopefully they'll just volunteer it, but the, how, how did that happen? How did she, where did, it, where did that STD come from? Um, and then the other thing, of course, I'm going to want to find out is how is there, What's been going on in their marriage for the last three to six months or a year, depending on how long that problem, you know, obviously there's been some, some form of infidelity at some point here. And so finding out where uh, in the process they started to drift and what has been going on, how long has it been going on, just kind of the severity of, of the situation, of the drift, of the distance, if there, if there is one. There's so much you don't know about uh, what, what's happening in this case. Are they believers? Do they believe in Christ? Do they want biblical counsel? Do they believe in the scriptures? Are they, has God given them something they can't handle? Who is this God you're referring to? I, what's their theology? What's their concept of forgiveness? What's their concept of reconciliation? What's their concept of bitterness? <laughs> there is so many things you don't know. And if start into condemnation, or how could you? You're married, or you're coming to our small group. People in our small group don't do that. Right. Or... <laughs> The condemnation of the crowd. That's a good one. We'll go, thanks. So you know, you know there's a lot of stuff that comes up, and it's probably like, no, that is our small group, or that was our case we had last week. And so many things that could occur. A question in the back? Right. There's so, so much you don't know. And to get to a point where you're asking actually intelligent questions, I, I would say one of the greatest tools in the counseling room, the Holy Spirit, but how you ask questions and the questions you ask. And not in what's called a conversational implicative. People will ask questions to just push things in a different direction and because they want to take them there. Well, the dynamic of really a good counselor, you're, 
you're asking questions to explore because you really don't know the answers to those. I think a lot of times just that when you're asking questions, again, I, I, you know, I say things like, you know, I just want you to know I, I, I don't have a set agenda. I don't have an answer I'm looking for. I'm just really curious. I don't have enough information. Can you just something like that? Can you just help me understand X, Y, Z? Uh, and, and just to help people to feel free and feel safe. And, and, and Romans 8.1 is a great verse in these situations. There is therefore now no condemnation. I do not condemn you. I want to help. I want to help you uh, turn from this. I want to help you restore your marriage. I want, your, I want to help you. I want to be a part of the process of your marriage being better than it's ever been before. And with God's help, you can get there. And so condem- no condemnation is critical that we communicate while we're asking questions. I think saying it and then also the way we ask the questions together, both of those things in tandem can really help people be willing to open up uh, in a difficult situation. Thank you. And just moving on that, here's what to do in counseling. You need to ask questions. Actually, in my training, that was a case, and it's a real case. I had to come up with 50 questions to even begin the counseling session. 50, just to begin the counseling session. And I wasn't really good at asking questions at the time, and I'm like asking what's the weather like when this happened? Like, just, that is just such a stupid question. I had to fill up. I didn't even know what to ask at the time. But what you can do is really learn to ask questions in different ways. Uh, another thing, too, at some point, you're going to plant the seed of God's Word. God's Word, planted on good soil, can grow 30, 60, 100-fold in the future. If you have never seen a mustard seed, And even in regard to the scriptures, um, the Bible talks about the kingdom of God. It's like a mustard seed. And if it hits the right soil, if you'd like to see a mustard seed, I actually have some up here because the analogy is so powerful. This was one of the smallest seeds in Palestine. And so when Jesus is talking with people and says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, and if it plants, it'll grow to be 8, 10, 12 foot. It's one of the biggest plants in that region. And the analogy is powerful too because when you're planting the seeds of God's word, Hopefully, over time, there's going to be growth. And when you look at Galatians 5, verse 22, the fruit, singular, but plural in its aggregation, love, joy, peace, patience, there'll be gentleness. You'll start seeing the inner manifest itself externally in a person's life. This seed that you plant over time can grow when we start out learning about the scriptures, when Peter is closing his letter in 2 Peter 3, verse 18, he's saying, grow in the grace and knowledge. As you become more knowledgeable about the scriptures, I am willing to bet there'll be a correlation of your extension of grace. You're not going to be quick to judge. And you understand salvation by grace. You understand gracious words. You know you really have nothing to boast on. From your intelligence to your status in life, your job, your position, it's all by the grace of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 10, I am what I am by the grace of God. Sounds like Popeye. I don't know if you guys remember. Like, I am what I am. It's all like, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am. It's the grace of God that moves us. So, so many times people want to talk about getting to the heart, and it's an important topic. It really is so important. But if you want to be a heart surgeon, you need to be trained. And so many times people want to go, well, let's talk about the heart of the matter. Get to the heart. Scott, how important is this? Because this is something that it, it counselors, as you grow in your skill of counseling, like what's the heart issue or the heart? But briefly. Yeah, let me uh, just uh, share a quick story to get, give you an idea of the importance of it. Um, I uh, counseled a man a number of years ago who, had, who came to me with the label of a compulsive liar. 
He literally lied all the time. He would create a resume, falsify a resume, make up stories about jobs he had. He would get six-figure jobs, salary. He'd get a salary in this field, six figures, at $150,000, $120,000 a year salary. He would do the job for six months, and by the end of six months, they figured out he's not qualified, and they would fire him. So what would he do? He would falsify another resume and create another story and go get another job over, making over $100,000 a year. And he did this type of thing for two decades, 20 years of chronic lying. And he's a professing Christian for this whole time. And he knows it's wrong, and he doesn't know how to stop. Now, the Bible says, you shall not bear false witness in Exodus 20. Would that verse be helpful for him? No, it wouldn't help him at all. He knows that. He goes home, and he is severely depressed every night when he goes home because he knows he lied all day. This lying got so bad that he would actually... His wife would call him on the cell phone and say, what are you doing right now? And he'd say, oh, I'm on a sales call. And he'd actually be in the McDonald's buying a $1 sweet tea, and he would lie to his wife. And, and the importance of getting to the heart is if I just tell him all the Bible verses about lying and how in John 8 it's the speaking the devil's native language, he already knows all of that. It's not helpful. But helping him to understand why he lies and through, his, through hearing his story and understanding his struggle... And helping him to see, listening for themes and patterns in his story, we came to uncover in this case, this man loved the praises of men. He wanted affirmation and approval. He would do anything for you to think highly of him. And when he saw that, when, he got, when he, we were able to connect the dots for him to help him to see that, and we called him to a place of repentance over that heart issue, not the lying. One of the things I told him when he first came was, lying is not your biggest problem. And he told me later, we became friends later, he told me, he about walked out, out the door. He said, what do you mean lying's not my biggest problem? That's exactly why I'm here. But I had to help him to see he didn't understand that the fruit at the top of the tree, so to speak, if you think about your behavior as fruit, the fruit at the top of the tree um, is, was the lying. But at the root of it, he had something much more significant than the lying. It was his love of the praises of men. And he needed to repent of that and, and be much more concerned about what God thought of him and much less concerned about what others thought of him. When he made what Christ thought of him more important than what others thought, he was free. He became free. He repented of that sin, and he was free in Christ, and then he began to bear much good fruit. Thanks, Scott. Um, good. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what you can and cannot do for counseling. There's different things that you really need to understand as you develop skills as how to counsel from the Scripture. First thing you cannot do, you cannot save in Acts 4.13, 4.12, it says, Salvation is found in no other name. There is no other name given to men upon which we must be saved. When you look at James 1.21, it talks about remove filthiness. So with humility, you can receive the word of God, which is able to save your soul. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. People come to faith as you become an ambassador of God's word. In different ways, you cannot save. That is God. And I don't think God would give that. You look at the, dis, the, the development of the disciples, like the power of salvation. And John, you know, my, what, what do you think of when you think of the apostle John? Loving, he's nestled on Jesus' bosom, right? You know, he used to be called the son of thunder. When him and Peter are walking, there's people doing stuff in the name of Christ. And like, Jesus, think we should call down fire from heaven on those guys? Make them stop? And he's like, what? What are you guys doing? Where are you learning this? But such a transformation into the heart of love by, and compassion as he understood. That man's transformed. Even the impetuousness of Peter. Peter is saved. 
truly, when you read through Second Peter and First um, Peter and Second Peter, you cannot sanctify. John 17, 17, sanctify them with your word. Your word is truth. Sanctification comes with a constant outflowing and pouring, washing over of the word of God. It's the word of God that performs the work in you. In Acts 20, verse 32, he's saying, I'm entrusting you to God and to his word, which is able to build you up. The scriptures are so important to understand that The scriptures teach us we cannot save. The scriptures teach us we cannot sanctify. What you can do is follow God's instructions. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, make it your goal. Make it your ambition to please God. You even know what that means. How would the relationship with God be pleased over time? And as you learn to please God, you'll learn to have pleasing relationships with one another. Because you think about how, and you think about where we're going to go next, from the theological to the real practical. So we're going to take a five-minute break to kind of flow through. Scott Faulkner, will you raise your hand? If you have a question that you wrote down, or if you haven't yet, write down a question, because we're going to do a Q&A in the last part. So make sure you grab Scott and um, go from there. So take, uh, let's do seven minutes, so you can stretch, get a refreshment, and then we'll start promptly right when we come back. Sound good? Thanks, guys. All right, if you could have a seat. If everyone could have a seat, please. We'll get started here in just a moment. What we want to do is uh, take a few moments now to, get star- uh, to talk a little bit about this uh, theology to practical idea. And uh, what we want to do is ask you to consider, I'm going to show you, we're going to show a short video here in just a second. But I want to encourage you to consider all of us have a posture of relating to God. And uh, he's going to, uh, this is Sky Jathani, he's going to uh, share uh, four, four different postures, four different insufficient postures of relating to God. And then, and then he'll give you, we'll talk about a final posture, the one that we want to uh, aspire to and help people with. So here's the video. And uh, go ahead from here and we'll talk about it in just a moment. Can you put sound on this video? We use God as the source of No, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, though. Life from God rightly teaches that he is our provider, but that's all it sees him as. This posture makes him into a divine vending machine to give us what we desire. Life for God makes everything about God's mission in the world. It uses God to give us a sense of meaning and purpose. In each of these postures, God is used to achieve some other desire. He is a means to an end. He provides us with a sense of control or blessings or the principles by which we govern our lives or a sense of meaning and purpose and direction. Sorry for the technical difficulty. We'll just give it another minute or two, and if not, we can uh, make an adjustment here. But bear with us just for another minute or two. With God, which is the central calling of Jesus Christ, then we need to see that God is not merely the means by which we achieve our treasure. In the Christian faith, God is our treasure. The reason why a great many people in the church today are failing to experience the freedom and wonder of the A few years ago, a sociologist studied the religious lives of teenagers. What he concluded is that most of them had a view of God as either a divine butler or a cosmic therapist. In other words, they weren't particularly interested in God himself, only what he could do for them. 
This really shouldn't surprise us because most religious traditions teach us to use God to achieve some other desire. For example, in many traditions we're taught that we should live under God. By obeying commands, we're told God will bless us and be on our side. The idea is to use God to control one's life and world. Life over God says following the right principles is how to guarantee a good life. In this case, we use God as the source for practical help and advice. Life from God rightly teaches that He is our provider, but that's all it sees Him as. This posture makes Him into a divine vending machine to give us what we desire. Life for God makes everything about God's mission in the world. It uses God to give us a sense of meaning and purpose. In each of these postures, God is used to achieve some other desire. He is a means to an end. He provides us with a sense of control or blessings or the principles by which we govern our lives or a sense of meaning and purpose and direction. And there's a truth to each of those postures. God does supply us with those things. But in the end, if we really want to experience life with God, which is the central calling of Jesus Christ, then we need to see that God is not merely the means by which we achieve our treasure. In the Christian faith, God is our treasure. The reason why a great many people in the church today are failing to experience the freedom and wonder of the Christian life is because they've never been taught to actually desire and want God. They don't treasure Him. Instead, they've been taught to merely use Him to achieve some lesser desire. To make sense of what a life with God actually looks like, let's break it down into three parts. Imagine someone dreaming of a new house, or a vacation, or a vintage Mustang. Life with that new car begins with dreaming about it, envisioning it, treasuring it. The same is true of life with God. We must first have a clear vision of who He is, His beauty, His goodness, and His love. When we don't have a clear vision of who God is, we're not going to desire Him. We won't treasure Him. At best, we'll seek to use Him to achieve something else. But in the scriptures, we're told that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ, that He is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, we are given a clear and ravishing vision of who God is, of His beauty, of His love, of His goodness, and His power. That explains why people were crawling over themselves trying to be closer to Christ. Sadly today, few people are given a clear vision of who Jesus is, even within the church. Instead, we're given some lesser vision, a vision for the church or its growth, a vision for mission or for a better life, happier family, a more successful job. And when that happens, God is reduced once again from the end and desire of our lives to just the means by which we achieve these lesser things. But treasuring isn't enough. You can dream about a vintage Mustang all day, but in order to live with it, you must actually acquire it. After treasuring God, we must be united with Him. By Christ's death and resurrection, the sin that has separated us from God is removed, and the way is open for us to be united with Him once again. In Christ, we are reconciled to God. We are united again with what we treasure most. Many people have come to believe that the gospel is about how we get into heaven. But if that's the full understanding of the gospel we have, all we've done is reduce God to a means to an end again. He's how we avoid hell. But the truth is, the gospel's not about how we get into heaven. The gospel is about how people get to God. It's about being united again with Him when He's our treasure. Finally, life with God finds fulfillment as we experience Him. As with the previous two steps, this one is also made possible through Christ. By His example and by sending His Spirit, Jesus taught us what a life lived with God looks like. 
It's not just about prayer and reading the Bible, but it's the rich and mysterious mingling of our spirit with His in ceaseless communion. Every other posture of religious life, whether it's life under God, over God, from God, or for God, they each try to use Him to achieve some lesser desire. But life with God is different because it doesn't want to use God, it wants God. But it all begins with a clear vision of who He is, a vision that comes to us by His grace through Jesus Christ. And when we receive it, God ceases to be a means to an end, and He begins to become our treasure. Let me ask you to consider um, this thought, uh, and I hope you'll mull on it for many, many weeks and months and consider even buying the book and wrestle through that. Um, Psalm 73 has been a great... Psalm 73, verses 24 and 25, uh, 25 and 26, excuse me, have been a wonderful encouragement to me and really got me going on this search in terms of treasuring. What does it mean to treasure Christ? Psalm 73, 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What a great and glorious invitation we have from God to invite us into fellowship and friendship with Him. And if we look at these postures, this life under God, this is this idea of, of obeying the rules, of following the commands. This life over God is a form of legalism where we think that we're going to follow, these, follow the principles that God has set up. He's a distant and far-off God. Life from God is this health and wealth and prosperity gospel where God has to give me things. That's what I want God for is to give me all those things. And then life for God, the one I struggle with, and I suspect maybe some folks around here do as well, and that is life for God. I want to do and do and do for God. And sometimes I forget the greatest treasure is not what I get to do for God. The greatest treasure is God himself, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my greatest treasure. And like he said in there uh, in the video, uh, heaven is not ultimately the goal. Heaven is not the prize. One of the things I like to do in counseling is I try to ask people, what's so great about heaven? What's so great about heaven? Streets of gold, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. Those are all great things, but what's the greatest thing about heaven? Yes. Amen. The face of Christ, being with God, being with Christ forever. And so we have this great and glorious privilege. So when we counsel people, when we minister to people who are hurting, we want to help them to consider how do they view God? Where is their view of God? Are they seeing God as somebody they have to follow the rules by a harsh taskmaster? Are they seeing somebody who's distant and far off and they've got to just use the, the, the rules of the universe to govern? By God's grace, we want to invite people to cherish and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ above all things. And I'd love to take you to Colossians chapter 3, if you would, for just a few moments. And I'll walk through this very quickly. And I hope you'll study this passage more as a result of our time today. Colossians chapter 3. In a sense, what we're talking about is life with God. And I'd love for you to be challenged by Colossians 3, 1 to 4 in particular. And before I read it, though, I'd like to ask you to consider uh, a quote from John Piper. And he says, The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. 
This great and glorious privilege we have is to invite people to live life with God, to be in fellowship with Him, to see Him to be the greatest treasure. Let's take a look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. If, then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen to this. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. When Christ is your life, not your job, not your career, not your aspirations, not your family history, not your family name, when Christ is your life. And what's quite amazing about this passage is, you will see here in verse uh, 1, it says, if then, that word then, is the, is, it's therefore, it's the same word therefore in verse 5. And, and this passage builds on itself. And so we have this beautiful privilege of life with God. If you've been saved, if Christ is your king, Christ is your life. And if Christ is your life, then he says, therefore, in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he's going to list a whole bunch of sins of what's going to, what people do. And I want to encourage you to consider when you're working with people, when you're discipling people, when you're counseling yourself, we do want to, we want to, we want to turn from sin. That's good. But how do we have the power to do that? Life with God. Titus 2, 11 and 12 It's the grace of God that teaches me to say no to ungodliness. It's the grace of God. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We get to live life with God. What a privilege. What a joy that it is to live life with God. Life with God is the the foundation of our Christian life. It's the epicenter of the Christian experience. Life with God. And when we experience life with God, we therefore are able to put to death all kinds of sin. And let's read a few. We can put to death, therefore, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeking the, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. That's intimate knowledge. Intimate knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek, nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So when Christ is our life, when we help people to see God rightly, when we have a ravishing view of who God is, what a great privilege it is to represent God, to be his ambassador to other people, to speak the truth to ourselves about who God is. He is great and He is glorious and He is compassionate and He is kind and He is loving and He is faithful. This is the God that we serve. Help each of us, help us, help yourself by having a right view of who God is. He is a glorious King and He invites us into friendship. In John chapter 15, this great passage on abiding in Christ, He invites us into friendship with Him. And so be excited, be joyful about that. We just celebrated the resurrection. Rejoice, Jesus is alive, and he invites us to be in fellowship with him now and into eternity. That ought to excite us. We ought to be thrilled about that privilege. We ought to be thrilled to invite people into closer, uh, closer relationship, closer fellowship with Christ because he is glorious. Now notice this last piece then, life with others. Colossians three twelve to 17. The key verse in the middle there in verse 16 is, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
Lots of people who love the Bible love that verse. And I'm one of those people, and I think I misused it for years about personal Bible study and personal Bible reading. We've already challenged you with that. That's absolutely true. I wouldn't use this passage to, to challenge you there, though. Joshua 1, 8 and 9, for example, would be great. Uh, and Psalm 119 would be wonderful, uh, but other places. But this is a life with others. This is a beautiful picture of when we have life with God, we're able to conquer our sin, And when we conquer our sin, we're no longer selfishly living for ourselves. We can be a blessing to other people. And when we're a blessing to other people, we will live life with others. Listen to Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. That word compassion again. It's a foundation to the Christian life. Put on then, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Forgiveness is essential in relationships. If you're doing any help with people who are struggling, they must learn to forgive. And how are they going to forgive? They're only going to forgive if they remember that they've been forgiven by Christ. And then in verse 15, and let, and verse 14, and, the, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now notice here all these plural words. There's these these ideas of hearts um, and and the body and, and perfect harmony. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. This is a plurality of conversation. This is about the body of Christ together, speaking words of life to one another. Would we be a part of a community like that? Would we be a part of a community that invites people to enter in, to speak words of life and of truth to us, even challenging and convicting? Would we do the same for other people? Would we put on compassionate hearts for one another? Would we love people well? And when we do that, verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We have this great and glorious privilege to glorify God, to honor Him, to bring glory to His name. When we live life with God because He is the greatest treasure, we conquer our sin, and then we live life with others for the glory of God. That was what God is inviting us to, and that's what counseling in a biblical way is all about. That's what biblical friendship and relationships are about. May God be glorified as we do that for each other. Scott, do you want to keep going with the call to action that we have for as yeah. just even applying all these different things? Great. Yeah, and this call to action, we want to help you to consider that um, as we grow in this ability, we want to remember that all of us are counselors to somebody. We are all counselors to somebody. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you are spiritual, restore him. And in restoring him, we then bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's a great privilege. Let us be about this business of, of being about of restoring people, of helping people, of bearing burdens. And to do that, we need to be students of the Word, reviewing from the beginning. We need to read the Scriptures. We need to spend time in the Word. Deuteronomy 8.3, Man does not live on bread alone. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Would you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another, but be in the scriptures because we want to feed our souls so that we can be a blessing to others. When we start looking to the importance of listening, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice and they listen to me. As you develop your skill of listening, 
in Proverbs 18, 13, it talks about he who speaks before listening, it's to his folly and shame. You'll be the one shamed in different discussions if you speak before you even take time to listen. It's fascinating when you see through Scripture, it's called a theophany, when God speaks from above. And you'll see this at the baptism of Jesus and then on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he's, God speaks and he says, this is my son. With him, I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So important. The third point, Scott. Is this idea of learning, being continual learners. Uh, we've already touched on it, but Second. Uh, Second uh, Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We ought to be continually be students. We want to we learn all that God has for us in the days and weeks ahead. And, and being a good student, to be a good counselor, you have to be a good counselee first. You have to learn to counsel yourself. So learn to do that through the scriptures. Be a good learner. Learning the scriptures and then learning uh, to read other things, other books that, that bless and encourage and help you and your ability to help others. We're, we're going to take a little, thank you. We're going to take a little break here, just five minutes. So if you need to use the restroom, and if you've written down a question that you'd like asked or answered, give it to Scott Faulkner here at the front, and Scott's going to go through some of the different questions. So take a five-minute break. We also have, there's a, 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 just a thing back there that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, so you can check out some of the books that are back there, and we're going to talk, too, about compassion a little bit later. So five minutes, and then come on back. And if you haven't got your question, Scott, raise your hand. Get it to Scott. And if you need another mint or a piece of gum, see Jared or Jack, too, as they're floating around. Greetings. I always like the uh, professional sports teams when they do those press conferences. So I always want to be the guy on the side that asks the questions to the... <laughs> Mariana Rivera just did it, and I thought, that was an awesome press conference. So I have volunteered to... So that way the guy doesn't re- repeat the question, and we can jump right into it. So the first question is, and this is the number one question if we're doing a survey, is how do you counsel and show compassion to those who either oppose the Bible, don't accept counsel, make excuses, play the victim, won't acknowledge your part, or take any action? Um, and do that me, in one let me, minute. Let me start. Uh, there's a couple things. Let me start with the victim piece. I, I saw that in one of the questions earlier. When you have somebody who's playing the victim, um, you want to be very, very compassionate. It's so easy to get irritated and angry with them. And you've got to remember everyone's in process. You've got to be patient. Love is patient. If you demand them to change right now, that's not loving. Love is patient. Yes, we hold to the truth, but be patient with them in the process. And you're going to want to. Uh, help them by listening as they talk. Use some of their words to help them to see they're playing the victim. So when they make statements that put them in that light, you want to bring that later to their attention at some point. Pray for the Lord's timing of when's the right time, but help them. Do you see what you're doing? And you give them three or four examples of things that they've said to help them to see. And, and, And I would propose to you, God has a much better place for you than to be the victim God wants you to be a conqueror in Christ. He wants you to remember that you're a child of God. He wants you to remember your identity is not in what has happened to you. It's who you are in Christ. And there's lots of scripture you could use. 1 Peter 2.9 would be a great one on your identity in Christ. Uh, Colossians 3.1-4, we just covered your identity in Christ. Um, but get them to help them to see that they are playing that role and then invite them to something better. But you've got to be patient with them because you have to remember that you're, they're in process. You You know, um, it's common, and that is probably a frequent asked question. I like to discern whether the person's curious or serious. 
And they'll come with questions, and then it'll turn into it's if, like, they close their ears. And there's usually a pivot point in the conversation that fine. And you'll see this in the rich young ruler. Let's, you can find this in Matthew 19 as well as in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is giving counsel, and he's giving some very specific counsel. And in essence, he doesn't take it. But Jesus, in Mark 10, I think it's verse 21, it says he looked at him and he loved him. And he gave the counsel as if when you're ready to receive this, I'm here. And perhaps I might be the one that God's going to use as an ambassador to deliver this message. But right now, um, you're a victim. You're not listening. You don't really want this help. So let's like kill the charade right now. And if you're at a point where you'd like to hear, I'm happy to help. But and if I could just jump on that real quick, Luke chapter 15, and having the posture of the prodigal father, the prodigal father lets the person go off in their sin, but he keeps looking. He's still filled with compassion for the one who's wandering, and he's waiting for him to return. And, and what happens is when the son is away, what happens? He remembers the kindness of his father. Can you read that, Scott? What does it say? 1520? Uh, 1520. So he got up and came to his father... But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So even the essence is you're going to want to, like, I'm not into this either, and return evil for evil or insult for insult, don't do that. Like, some of the hardest part of counseling is with tears in your eyes. You're looking at someone and loving them and saying, I'll be here. I pray God softens your heart to get to a point where you do hear. In Proverbs 19.27, it says, cease listening. You will stray. When do we seek help in a difficult situation? And then ultimately, when do we walk away? Great question, whoever asked that. Who, who did ask you? Maybe a lot of people asked. That's okay. I don't want to even own up a question. One of the things, I talk to people in military strategy, and a lot of times when people are in the military, they'll be asked to do something with an intense objective. And so you lead your group of people with an intense objective. And what happens is people get so focused on this intense objective, and they get it, but it costs all the help and the carnage and the shredding of hurting so many different people. The one thing that they want to teach people is when you're in an intense situation, ask for help. Ask for backup. And when we take the pride and we don't ask others to come into counseling with community or bringing what we call an advocate, someone that loves God, loves his word, and loves who cares about you, we'll do that ultimate objective and go for it. And then you'll look back and all these people are shredded and decimated. And like, look it, I got it. That wasn't the point. You should have asked for help way back here. And our pride many times will prevent people. And so I get encouraged when people come to me and they're asking for help. I'm like, that's a softness that I'd like to serve. As opposed to, you look at the scribes and Pharisees, they never asked for help. They wanted to teach Jesus theology. How do we counsel differently when speaking with a believer versus a non-believer? Um, I, would, I would encourage you to consider this, and so some would have maybe a different perspective, but I want to encourage you to consider whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, what do you need? You need the same gospel. And so when I'm counseling, every person I know, every person I speak with, every person I talk to, gets the gospel because it's not just for unbelievers to get saved it's for us to be remembering who we are in Christ and so I am very much covering the truth of scriptures and I'm going to give the gospel to everybody and, and consider this in Matthew 7 uh, he, he tells us many will say to me on that day did I not do this that and the other meaning they looked like Christians you don't know who's a Christian anyway 
They need the gospel. Whether they're saved or unsaved, they're going to get the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sin has separated you from God. Jesus Christ is the answer. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He lived a sinless life. He's the only substitute to pay the penalty for that sin. The wrath of God has been satisfied because of, of Christ, and he conquered sin and death through his resurrection, and now he is your Lord and Savior if you will submit to him. Will you put your faith and trust in him? Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then it's a journey of living life with God. All of us need the gospel, folks. And so I honestly don't make a huge distinction. Everybody gets the gospel, and they all need to be called to repentance. And whether it's to salvation or to growth in Christ, I don't always know, but they need repentance and faith in Christ and that they're going to get the gospel every time. In the case it was discussed, we assume the wife was unfaithful. So in counseling couples, how do you manage your personal biases? It's so important. And actually, uh, in Deuteronomy one seventeen, it talks about to show partiality as sin. And you'll see that in the book of James as well, going through. Um, I'm thinking it's Proverbs 23.24. He who shows partiality, it's sin. It's not good. And so a lot of times we do have some biases. But what happens, too, in a marriage couple or a counseling situation, they'll be biased, prayed played to the husband. The husband's the monster and this ogre and the sweet, young, innocent woman. Or in other ways, it's the sweet, young, innocent woman that could, is a cherubim and could do no wrong. So actually for the counselor to show partiality is sin. And we do carry some different biases. We have to be aware of that. That's why you want to be in discipleship relationships and even with other people that you're constantly learning and saying, help me. I, I think I showed preference here because they'll sense that on the other side of the table. The other thing I would add is when you're thinking about helping people in that situation, um, is the husband in that situation sinless? No, of course not. There is no one sinless. No, none of us are righteous. Biblical view of man, biblical anthropology. And so what you're doing is, what I'm trying to do is I want to help them separate and take ownership of their sin. So is it the husband's fault that she, we'll just assume for a moment, she was unfaithful? Is it the husband's fault? Does he get any part of the blame? The answer is no. She's 100% responsible for her sin However, the husband's not perfect, and so it's not a matter of partiality. They're both sinners. They both need the gospel. They both need to repent of various different things. And I, out of love for both of them, want to help them to see themselves accurately and then share the good news of the gospel, the good news of the, of the scriptures, to help them grow and change individually. And then as they both grow individually, we put that back together, and they can put their marriage back together. And so it's very important, like Todd said, not to show partiality. And, and there ought not be partiality because everyone that you meet with, everyone you spend time with, including yourself, is a sinner. And we want to help them to separate and take ownership of what's theirs. And that's really important, too, because in relationships, maybe the guy knows a counselor and knows that he'll get partiality with that counselor. And the woman knows a counselor and knows that he's going to favor me. And so what happens is it's the, it's the wrong first step to enter into the counseling dynamic. So that's a question you want to ask even a, someone that's counseling. Like, are you going to show partiality or what? Do the scriptures talk about that and play like, I don't know what's going on here, and just see how they respond. Compassion is a very complex feeling. How would you express compassion through actions without the use of words, verbally expressing? Just give us a few examples. Uh, a look in your face, a softness in your eyes. Um, if you counsel people and you don't have tears in your eyes ever, there's something seriously wrong. Um, there ought to be tears in your eyes for the pain that people suffer. 
people have been sexually abused. They've been abused by their parents. They've been mistreated for decades, and now they're desperate for help. And if you don't have, if, if you don't have any tears in your eyes, something is wrong, people. And, and I just want to encourage you. Uh, that would be one, a, an appropriate hand on a shoulder or something. You want to be careful with opposite sex and things. We always want to be, uh, that's why it's important to have advocates and other examples so you don't ever counsel alone with another person of the opposite sex, um, but to have someone in the room with you. But, but an appropriate hand on the shoulder or, or things like that uh, can be a, a reassuring thing um, or, or, or just a touch on the knee while they're sitting there in front of you or something and then back off and don't, don't linger and things like that. But just a word, a things of affection, facial expressions, a softness in your, and even, in, I would say, though you didn't say words, but I think the tone of your voice, the tenderness with which you talk and the, the compassion that you have towards them and the way, in the tone of the words you use is very important as well. Proverbs 15.1, it says, uh, a harsh word stirs up anger. And so if the counselor, even the tone, what are you doing? Bark, howl, bing, bing. You're like, it's stirring up anger. But a soft voice, a soft voice will actually soothe that. So part of compassion is even if the person is really hurting and they might raise their voice with you to come in with the softer, milder, soothing voice to pay attention. Tone is so important. And when you do look at Jesus is looking at people and loving them. Actually, he comes into the city and it says he looked at him as sheep without a shepherd and he felt compassion. Like he felt compassion as if like, oh, these people need help, but they don't even see it themselves. And just an expression on scripture, like just in the Easter, Jesus is still, one thief is just berating him. If you are, if, right? And the other guys say, hey, we deserve to be up here. You don't. And Jesus even says, tonight you'll be with me. Like how compassionate in paradise for going, he's hurting, right? Even in the essence, a lot of people don't know that the counselor might have so many tests and tribulations going on. And it's, it's, it is about serving the other person, but each, even the counselor is getting tested. Probably some of the greatest tests I had over a number of years is um, I would have, I wouldn't want to counsel pedophiles. I'd want to break their neck. I really would. And God, like, put me in case after case. And, Todd, you're to love him. You're to be the herald that I'm going to put in the room. Just going, I don't want to do that. And God's softening my heart. And hearing how they got to that point, just going, wow. May the grace of the Lord, it's like Jonah in different ways, be upon him. And just coming out like Jonah, I'm still going to do God's will in different ways. But to get to a point, even as Scott was saying, and, you know, who wants to see a grown man cry? I cry more times in counseling sessions. I care to admit. And even you weep with those who weep, it says in Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. You might do that in the course of a moment. Sometimes you're with someone, and it's like you would celebrate and encourage people. They celebrate authentically with you, but also to weep. Like, I am sorry you're going through that. I'll just add one last thing, this, this idea of putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Imagine yourself and whatever they are experiencing that they got there. How did that person get there again, like he just said? But put yourself in their shoes and, and walk, in a sense, down the road with them. Isn't that what Jesus did? He left his place. He left heaven, and he came to earth to walk among us. He lived among us. And would you consider putting yourself in the other person's shoes? And as you do that, your heart ought to fill with compassion and then allow the Spirit of God to move you to make whatever action is appropriate. You don't want to be robotically, oh, he said to touch the guy, touch the lady's knee. I'm going to touch the knee now. No, it's, that's not what we're talking about. It's, it's a heart of compassion. Uh, good. So good. I've got to mark that out. Um, <laughs> how do you know your spouse or friend has forgiven you? 
can I have that one? I'll love to take that one. Uh, this is a great question, and this is covered in any anytime I'm doing adultery or things like that that are huge and the forgiveness is necessary. This is great news, guys. Forgiveness is very, very objective. You can know. I can answer that question very clearly. Okay? I'm going to give you three. You've got to write down three things. There's a threefold promise of biblical forgiveness. This is how you know if you've forgiven. It's not a feeling. It doesn't matter how you feel that day. It doesn't matter if you're sad. It's a threefold promise. The first is, I will, re- I will not remember the offense. I will not dwell on, is a better way to say it. I will not dwell on the offense. I will not dwell on the offense. Hebrews 8, 12. When God speaks, he says, I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sin no more. I will not dwell on the offense. I'll elaborate on that in just a second. The second one is, um, I will not use the offense against you. I will not use the offense against you. Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor repay us according to our iniquity. If you repay somebody for what they've done, you have not forgiven them. And then the third promise is, I won't speak to others about it. I won't speak to others about it. I won't speak to others about it. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. One of the things I like to say, too, is uh, forgiveness is free. Trust is earned. Amen. And you need to earn trust. Forgiveness is free. I mean, there's a high price that was cost, but respect and trust is earned. So when Paul is writing to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, there's a time where you're walking in truth. And some of the guys that know me love to say time and truth walk together. Time and truth walk together. So just put a little time in the equation and see what's happened if they're going to walk in the truth, or time can act as an acid, and it'll just dissolve a relationship, or an adhesive, and there'll be more. When Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, see what happens with a little bit of time on an equation in regard to their relationship with God and their relationship with you, whether the things that Scott just mentioned are true. Scott, let's take one or uh, one more. Can I, I'm sorry, I've got to bug one thing really fast, Todd. I'm really sorry. This is important on the, on the first point, not to dwell on the offense. If somebody's suffering, if they've been sinned against with adultery, for example, are they going to forget and like never remember that ever happened? Of course not. To ask them not to do that is impossible. But if their thought pops into their head and they start to recall, they can immediately take their thought captive and they can then rehearse the good news of the gospel. Father, you know what's happened in this hotel and I praise you and thank you that you are a God of grace and of mercy and of kindness and you promise to restore if we will move forward together. And I plead with you to help us now. Please help us to continue to unite. May you be glorified as we suffer through this trial. Amen. I don't believe that person has sinned. She's taken that thought captive, and she's chosen not to dwell on it. If she says, that idiot, I can't believe he did that. She's not even good looking. What is he thinking? What's she doing? She's rehearsing the sin. That's sinful. But if she takes her thought captive and doesn't dwell on the offense, she is not violating that first principle of not dwelling on the offense. Just had to get that in quick. Go ahead. Okay, this is a question that uh, I'm going to answer two questions and not allow them to answer. What are the red bandages or pinky sleeves? And then the question before was, how do you know if someone, your spouse or friend, is forgiving you? And so with, I have with me right here are these two books that Todd has written. It's, one's called One Simple Word, and the other one's called The One Simple Word Workbook that he's just developed. And it's how to have life conversations with God and with other people. So the biggest thing about, as you watch these guys, is what do they do better than most people you see? They ask questions. 
So if you want to go back and investigate this resource and look at it, you know, Todd's not going to plug the book himself, so I'm probably going to get in trouble for this later, but that's okay. Um, go read this, check it out, and then I always say to the men, because we struggle this the most, probably more than women do, it's a book back there called True Riches. It's like worldly riches versus God's riches. So it's another book. It's real short, quick to check out. Um, can you explain the sleeves for me? Ken, uh, thanks. And we have a reading list. Here's a reading list. We're going to put this up a- again. The only way you'd have one of these finger sleeves is if you understand compassion. And if you've actually sponsored a child with compassion, which is an expression of that, or involved in like the early launch of the one simple word. And it is designed exclusively to get people into conversation. So if you're wearing one of these, you'll know the person either sponsors a child in compassion. It's the only way you could get one of these or understands what one simple word is. And it is just designed. So you're sitting around and some people, I don't know how it works, but it's almost like crack in a positive way. Like, I want that. Or what is that? I'm glad you asked. May I ask you a question? So it's designed simply for that. And we, you have questions for us and you have questions for one another. But I want you to think about the questions you have for God. And one thing perhaps that you would ask God if you were to direct the questions now to him. And this has uh, audio on it. Let me try this again. If God... If God were sitting here with us today, what one thing would you want to ask him about? One of the things that's so important to understand in counseling or in life is compassion. And if you've never sponsored a child, I encourage you unabashedly, go back. Heather is here from Compassion. Raise her hand. Just wave to the people. She'll help you. Go sponsor a kid. Like, ex- understanding faith is always expressed in action. And I've been sponsoring kids for over 10 years, and it's amazing. In James one twenty seven, it says, this is pure. This is pure, undefiled religion in the sight of God. 
take care of widows and orphans. Scott, how has your experience with that been? Uh, It's been a great privilege. My wife and I have sponsored a child for almost 20 years. We, uh, our first child graduated and moved on, and her name was Susila from uh, Indonesia, and uh, she was about 13 or so. We got this, one of the highlight pictures in the mail you've ever gotten in your life. I got a picture of Susila getting baptized. They took a picture of her baptism after she had received Christ as her Savior. I mean, what a glorious privilege, and it was, only, it was 28 bucks a month back then, and I don't, I'm not sure what the total is right now. I just write one check a year now, but it's just a great privilege to be a part of sharing the good news with those who don't have we are the richest nation on the earth that's ever lived. And to give just a little is not that much. And I would plead with you and encourage you. It is a great experience and a great blessing. And a unique privilege you have is you get a finger sleeve if you sponsor a child <laughs> back there. So we're going to take a five-minute break. Go visit Heather. Go look back there. And then we have kind of a bonus section for you just to go through. Also, um, Jack and Jared are passing out evaluations. In the break, just go ahead and do a quick evaluation. Watermark appreciates this to give feedback for the session and what worked, what didn't. So take time to that. Go see Heather in back, sponsor a child, and you will get a finger sleeve. Jack and Jared will be back there too. We know there's some people in back, and uh, you still kind of settling in and I, I love seeing the compassion table full back there so if you if you didn't have the opportunity just go back take a look pray on it this isn't anything the blessing will be yours in acts 20 verse 35 it says it is more blessed to give than it is to receive you'll see we're all orphans and grafted in i'm not jewish and maybe some people we've been engrafted we've been adopted into the family of god in people's lives compassion is unique too they do it exclusively in the name of jesus it's not because they're good people or anything else. It's exclusively in the name of Jesus. And they don't compromise on that, which is even so sweet. Because people get saved in the name that's above every name um, from our Lord. So we kind of, Scott, you had a, some questions that we want to hit and just explore here. Yeah, do you, how do we, do you have any tips like on scripture memory? Or how can we learn scripture so we can apply it in a counseling conversation? I like that. Go ahead, start, Scott. I'm going to pull something up for him. All right. I would just encourage you. Um, oh, I think I'm on. Good. Sorry about that. Um, I would encourage you to think of it this way. Uh, I am not a smart guy. I'm really pretty average. I really mean that. And I have spent five minutes a day, many days, to memorize. And I'm really slow at it. But once I got it, I got it. And so I'd encourage you, five minutes a day, every day, when I read the scriptures and I think, oh, that's a cool verse, or that's encouraging, or oh, I know someone who struggles with that, or oh, I struggle with that, I write it down on a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle of the page, I write the reference on one side, line down the page, and write the scripture out on the other side. And then I just work through those sheets. I've got page after page after page of sheets. And if you spend five minutes a day, every day, you'll have a verse memorized in a week. If you do that for a year, that's 50, 52 verses. You do that for 10 years, that's 500. It's very simple. Five minutes a day. I don't, I don't carry cards. Some people like cards, and I don't do that. That's fine if people do, but I don't. I spend five minutes a day, and that's it. And then I close it, and I try to think about it throughout the day, and I just memorize one phrase at a time. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. That's Monday. For God so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. That's Tuesday. I say that about for five minutes. If you do that for five minutes, you'll, it, it's not that hard. It's just a process of would you diligently, faithfully, because it reaps such great reward. Jesus was tempted. What did Jesus do when he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4? He quoted scripture. This is the Son of God. This is, it just blows your mind. And how much more do we need to know scripture when we're tempted and then to help others when they're tempted? 
I, I plead with you, I urge you, five minutes a day. And then we would add, and I did not do this at the time, um, but do it with people. It would absolutely magnify and grow your uh, opportunity. We have memorized, for example, uh, uh, Psalm 23 as a family. So that's some family worship stuff we've done and a few other scriptures we've memorized together as a family. It's a great way to do it. But, but have a discipleship, accountability with other people. Five minutes a day, every day, and don't stop. And you'll be amazed how many verses you can have memorized uh, for God's help, for God's glory. It's such a good question. And even this would be a topic I'd select to choose a whole day on. Because many times what happens is, and and this is me talking, memorization usually equals regurgitation. There's a lot of times people will know like passage and verse and just like, for example, John 14, 6. I am the way, the Who is Jesus talking to? Most people don't know. And you think about the, just the regurgitation of a passage. That's one, John 3.16, and that one, probably one of the most quoted passages. But you ask, who was Jesus talking to? And you get the blank look. And not to embarrass anyone, but by the way, he was talking to Thomas. And that's where we get doubting Thomas. Thomas later went on to be a missionary in India. India is a place of polytheism. Of all messages that you think Thomas needed to hear, with certitude and confidence, I am the way, Thomas. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Meditation equals transformation. Just meditating as Scott's doing, it equals transformation. There's a big jump from knowing and doing. And again, this is a whole day seminar to go through. In, in some ways, we've saved the best for last, even just sharing that with you. Because a lot of times people will want things and um, they want, we want it too quick. You have to meditate. Almost like I love chicken wings. And when you get like some good chicken wings, right, you'll just chew on that bone. You'll like gnaw on it. You'll just really get that thing dry. And it's like it's empty. That's the same thing with Scripture. You're just chewing on it. You're gnawing on it. And then that bone is clean afterwards. And so that's really a secret, too. It's not a secret, but in Psalm 145, how's it go, Scott? On the glorious splendor of his majesty and on his wondrous works, we will meditate. Psalm 145, verse 5. When you look through in Joshua 1, as well as don't let the book of law, meditate. Meditation as a Christian, uh, in Eastern philosophy, is the emptying of self. Christian meditation is actually the infusion, the inner dwelling. When he writes in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell, tabernacle, like set up residence in you so you can teach. You can counsel, admonish is the next word. By the way, I have a friend, and this is such a wonderful thing to do with family. He brings coloring sheets, and he has grown men that are doctors, attorneys, coloring. And they're memorizing verses with their kids, and they're doing it in community. So if you want uh, a way to meditate and trace and color, this works. Is, would you agree, Scott? Amen. Oh, I don't color because I'm a man. But. <laughs> <laughs> but I make my guys do it. The, the real quick story behind that was is a, a guy was having trouble memorizing scripture. And so he said he couldn't do it because he didn't have time. And he didn't have time because he worked so much. And then he didn't have time to spend with his kids. So I gave him a sheet to take home. And his daughter colors every night because I knew. And then so they started coloring together. Well, now his daughter comes to him and says, hey, Daddy, what's the verse for this week? So now he's memorizing 52 verses a year. And we want to wrap up just even blessing you guys. You came to a a section, a workshop on how to counsel from the scriptures and what to do and what not to do. I'm I'm curious of your takeaway and even if there's a burning question that you have. Scott, do you want to, like, any takeaways from 
just raise your hand too, and uh, what did you learn from even just this morning's time? What will your takeaway be? Don't be shy. to send us forth to love and serve the community with his word. Good. Here and now, should take away, you'll leave this workshop and tell, hey, here's what I learned this morning. In front, here's Scott, too. There's some hands. I was just going to say, looking at at the person's face, I don't think I do that at all. And that was a really good point to watch their face, read read people, and then just be aware because there's so much you can catch just from seeing facial expressions. Good. Monty and well, mine was lead with compassion, not judgment. Mm-hmm. Amen. Is there one question someone has? There's a question to avoid when you're counseling. <laughs> I would say most definitely, and that that is a um, Scott's hinting at. In one simple word, there's four chapters. There's four chapters, and the first one it has Jesus's most frequently asked question. The, the second has the first question ever asked. It's the first question ever recorded in history. And the third chapter is one question to avoid. So I, I, I'd encourage you to read the book because it gives an apologetic about you want to avoid this or be very careful with it in regard to the counseling session. And the reason I really said that was even with the case that came up there, the first thing that came to a lot of people's mind was, why did you do this? Which would be the opposite of what they're teaching with compassion. And that's usually condemnation or you're entering into the door with that question. We'll shut it pretty quickly. One more back here. Um, I just want to say it was so encouraging. Um, I think it's our inclination as people to want to fix and change. And so I thought it was great how you guys pointed it, um, pointed the truth to him, not to yourselves. Um, and so you backed that with scripture. And so it was just convicting to, to know that in order to know him, we have to know his word and right. you have to be in the word, you know, to know the word. So, um, yeah, it was really good. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, Sally. If I could just encourage you guys as well, just uh, Todd is a, a great resource here to be of help for those of you who are uh, uh, struggling, hurting, or even have a hurting friend. Uh, would you consider being in this role of an advocate? Would you consider allowing Todd to, to counsel you or your friend and, and, and learn that, take those next steps as a, as a counselor, as a more equipped counselor? I would encourage you to do that. Uh, Todd's a great friend and, and just a a man of the word and just so appreciate him and I would love to see more and more people reach out to those who are hurting in your community uh, and, and let them come to someone uh, who knows the scriptures who's going to point them to the truth and to be set free and this is really important too this is a, it's a privilege for Scott and I to do this and to counsel in community hopefully you see like a globetrotter weave even between us so we're looking to love and serve one another and I learn as much from Scott as hopefully he learns from me we're constantly growing and exchanging resources and talking about how do we do this as a matter of fact there's a, um, a couple here from Chicago that we're going through premarital counseling and Scott and I were talking the one day and Scott what, what do you think would be essential for this couple or to go through and Share quickly the essence. This is really important, premarital or pre-engagement counseling. Very much so. Because we deal with so many hurting people later and after the fact, it's exciting and fun to talk with people beforehand, before all the trials come. And so the challenge I have for premarital couples is if you have a really godly spouse, uh, fiancé, and you are 
They're cream, cream of the crop, top of the line, awesome, great Christians. They might only sin against you once a day. And if you're not interested in being married for 50 years, then we need to stop this conversation because I'm not interested in helping you be married for 10 to try it out. It's just 50 years or bust. Uh, and so if you do the math, um, one sin a day, 365 sins a year, times 50 years, that's 18,000 and some odd sins. If you can't forgive your spouse 18,000 times, you will not make it, I promise you. <laughs> a little pre, pre-marital. So I want to challenge you and encourage you to see the importance of forgiveness and, and walking forward together because you must forgive. It's so essential. It's so essential and for compassion or understanding just these basics because um, it's the core of relationships. In Romans 2.4, it talks about, do you think lightly of the kindness of God? It leads us to repentance, and it moves us to forgiveness because we know what we've been forgiven of in a relationship. And the neat thing, too, just to boast on Scott for a little bit, um, he did some of the editing for some of the books that I've written. He has theological integrity that's like a plumb line. And I know I'm going to get an honest answer out of anything, and he'll shred some of my work and go, Todd, this needs a judge. That wouldn't be the right passage. It's so sweet doing life with community. And he just flew in from Indiana to help with this presentation, too, that says a lot. There are a few people that when you're really in pain or help that I know can help with certitude, and I've watched God do miracles through them. Scott's one of the few. And by the way, it's only one hand that I really refer people to. And so it's just sweet to have him come from his eight kids and be here for three days just to share some of the things that he's learned. So Scott's going to stay after, too, for about 15, 20 minutes and um, just answer some different questions. As a matter of fact, we came up with some key questions you need to ask a counselor when you go into counseling. And just any of these questions, any, any of them as you go through, anyone just really stark out or you want us to give a little explanation for the reason you'd like to ask that? The homework. Okay, number seven. Anyone else? We'll just do two of them just to give some context and close it up. Homework. Number two. Who's voting for number two? Okay, is there any other question you really want to hear answered? Okay, let's do number seven and number two. Scott, go ahead and start. What? Uh, what? Do, you, yeah. do you give homework? Yeah, with homework, of course, it's essential because what's the Christian life about? It's about growth. None of us are perfect. First John 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we're liars and the truth's not in us. Second Peter 3.18, we've covered numerous times. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you just listen to me, the counselor, and then you go home and don't remember or do anything with what I've said, we just wasted our time. And you have to be practicing and going through again and again. You need to be meditating. You will not change if you don't meditate on what you've been hearing in the counseling time. And so homework is just a tool to force you to think about what we've covered in our time. And that's the only way you're going to change. You're not going to change in the magic hour or in the counseling time. You don't just change there. You hear information in the counseling session, in the conversation, and then you've got to go apply it over time. And homework forces you to do that. And if you don't give homework, you don't understand the growth process. A good counselor, too, will have a plethora of homework because there is every person is unique and specific. And in baseball, it's three strikes and you're out. In counseling, for me, it's two strikes. If a, a counselee or someone does not do the homework, it says they're not interested, they're not committed, and they're not actually receiving the Word of God and the instruction of someone that's been placed over authority to help them. And usually when that happens, it's not good. And most of the time, too, Scott and I were talking like, Scott, what happens in counseling when it, doesn't, it isn't successful? You know what's the number one thing from my eyes? They do not do the homework. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. 
And it's really interesting how I, I had a pastor come in as an advocate, and he didn't do the homework. And it was indicative of his flock. And my countenance, like, oh, we've got more problems than are being presented here, was really what was going through my mind. And they don't see it yet. Any other comments on that? I think that's good. Good. And you'll see, like, literally, um, to be with a, a very good counselor, as everyone here grows in counsel, the homework is very specific to what's happening in their life. Two, how do you evaluate success when counseling? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, obviously, any form of counseling, you're trying to change someone. You're trying to help them grow in a certain way. What's the goal? What are you trying to grow them into? The only answer for the biblical counselor is Christ-likeness. If you have any other goal other than Christ-likeness, you're not doing biblical counseling. Christ-likeness is the goal. Romans 8, 28 and 29, All things do work together for good for those who love God, who have been called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we're after. Your counsel must be to help them to become more like Jesus. That sounds so simple, but when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, the goal, he even says it. Here's the goal. Make it your ambition to please God, to be in a right relationship with, with the Lord. It's so important that it's not about the counselor. It's not about, it's about the capital C counselor, the Holy Spirit, and being in alignment with that. Um, closing comments, Scott, and then we're just going to uh, let people... Enjoy the rest of the day. Yeah, just a great privilege to be here. Uh, I just want to encourage you guys to uh, meditate on the things that we've covered here. If you just come here and get all excited and walk out the door and don't review your notes, you're going to forget 99% of it very quickly. So I want to encourage you to practice what we've been talking about and meditate on these truths. Allow them to sink into your own life. And may God be glorified as we live life with Him for His glory as we conquer sin and then live life with others. And uh, just a last thing, if you want to get a hold of Scott, it's uh, 12stones.org, Scott at 12 Stones. For me, it's Todd at LitTorch.com, and we're here to answer some questions for another 15. Maybe you met some new friends here and want to talk about this more. We're happy to help. Um, and another opportunity, go sponsor a child if you, if you weren't able to. And if you want a mustard seed or even to see what a mustard seed is, come up and say hi uh, just to experience that. So with that, Scott, you want to close this in prayer or your last comment, please? Father, thank you for this day that we'd have an opportunity to be here, that we um, live in a country that we can come and sit and learn and listen without fear of being blown up. Uh, Pray for just the faithfulness of these two men that have taught us and shown us what it's like to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, that we too may, with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, give thankfulness to God. Pray uh, just for the folks sitting here that this would penetrate the heart, that you would really go back, study, do the homework that they ask, learn, listen, meditate on Scripture. Isaiah 54 says, I have been given an instructed tongue or a tongue of the disciples, which is a learner, to know the word that sustains the weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens me like as if one being taught. I pray that we would all stir in our hearts a desire to grow in the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. All this is Son's name. Amen.